Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. I have David Robertson to thank for the most unproductive jog ever. I was in Savannah delivering two speeches on two different days. And in between, I thought, I get some exercise. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I was listening to a book on tape by David Robertson. And because of that, I had to stop almost at every corner to take notes on what I was learning. So when I got a chance to get David Robertson on this podcast, I had to leap at it. David is a senior lecturer at MIT, Sloan School of Management. He's one of the most experienced faculty directors at MIT, having directed executive programs for dozens of companies over the last 15 years. From 2014 to 2017, he was the host of Innovation Navigation, a weekly radio show and podcast that focuses on the management of innovation. He is the author of the award-winning book about Legos near bankruptcy and spectacular recovery called Brick by Brick. Now, Lego rewrote the rules of innovation and conquered the global toy industry. He has published articles in Wired, Forbes, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, the Financial Times, and many other business journals. For the past couple of decades, David has focused his work around innovation and disruption. His most recent book, the one that I was reading or listening to back in Savannah, is called The Power of Little Ideas, a low-risk, high-reward approach to innovation. It is largely based on his findings in which he discusses how innovation is limited in its scope, understanding, and definition. Rather, being a sudden discovery, it's often about rethinking how you work the products and solutions that you already have to better meet seemingly incremental customer pain points. In this podcast, David discusses why we should be focusing on small innovations rather than big industry-changing ones, why Steve Jobs was not a disruptor, at least not intentionally, and the approach to innovation that allowed Lego to transform from near bankruptcy to supremacy and that enabled CarMax, Gatorade, Disney, and USAA to out-innovate their competition. Ladies and gentlemen, David Robertson. David, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to get into your work, your theories on innovation, your ideas on disruption, and your unique view on innovation. I'd like to open up with something more personal. So if you complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. One answer to that question is that I like Lego a little too much. And the reason for that is both personal and professional. So I was once the Lego professor of innovation. You know, what a great title. My son was seven years old and I never got any money from it. I got some toys, but I was definitely the cool dad. That led to me writing the book about Lego brick by brick, which was all about their turnaround. And as a case study in the management of innovation, and in particular, how innovation can reverse the fortunes of a company, just the way that Lego was able to go from near bankruptcy to spectacular growth and profitability because of the way they managed innovation has really influenced the direction of my career. But then the personal part of it is that I became quite a significant investor in Lego. My kids never suffered from a lack of Lego. My son just finished his master's degree in mechanical engineering from Carnegie Mellon. And so I can say with some 
truthfulness behind it that I think that investment in Lego, it's one of the best investments you can make in your kid's ability to support you when you're older. <laughs> so I do like Lego a little too much on a lot of different dimensions. The last part is I've become an adult fan of Lego. So one of the things that I do to relax is I'll get a kid and I'll build it. It just is a very relaxing way to spend time either alone or with family is to do it together when the kids are home. So the gift that pays off in multifold ways. And one way is in the lessons that you brought to life in their turnaround, the lessons regarding strategy and innovation, which is where we want to get to. But I'd like to start off by asking you first, and I ask this question of everyone that comes onto the show and each time the answer is different. What is your definition of strategy and or what is your definition of innovation? Yeah, so I'm not a strategy academic. I was more about innovation. I'm an engineer by training. So to me, strategy is one of those things that are done by the strategy people, you know, often the strategy department. And so my definition of strategy is an excuse for not listening to your customers. Hmm. Tell me some more. I see it again from people in other parts of the company who are trying to do something that customers really care about. And they're told, well, there's no money for that because our strategy is X. You know, they've hired consultants. You and I are both McKinsey alums. So we've been on the other side of this, Kaihan. We know that they come in, they do the strategy, and then they take their checks and go. And then the company has to execute that strategy. But strategies are never perfect. And it's like Mike Tyson said, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So going out and trying pieces of the strategy and learning where it works and where it doesn't and adjusting and growing, I think is the way to innovate. But too often, there's just no money for that because we're devoting it to building that perfect execution of the strategy. And then we launch it to the market. It doesn't work. We blame the victims and go off and the people who started that strategy go on and hire more consumers. So we're just getting punched in the face and the people who prepared us for the fight aren't there in the ring with us anymore. So I can see why you didn't follow strategy, but you followed innovation. What got you interested in innovation? I just think it's fun. The idea of taking something and creating it and bringing it to market. I started up a living group in college. My father was an innovator. He invented division. He was a dirt poor Cherokee Indian who got interested in computers back in the 50s and kind of accidentally invented division. So I don't know if you remember when the Pentium bug, when the Pentium chip didn't divide right. Remember that? I think it was back in the, was it the 80s or not? I don't remember now when it was. That was my father's algorithm, which is called SRT division, a successive recursive technique. And the way computers divide is different than you and me. Well, he invented that technique back when he was getting his PhD in the 50s. Very cool. Very cool. So you get caught up in innovation and you have contributed many things to the field of innovation and thoughts and shapes of shape the dialogue of innovation. But what would you say that you're most known for? What's the big idea of yours that people have most gravitated to? I've put my stake in the ground as a disruption skeptic. I did a study where I asked my students, my MBA, my executive MBA students to write a paper, and they had to compare two companies in the same industry, one of which is out-innovated the other. I just needed to do something besides, you know, I always had them invent a product or service, and we also had quizzes and stuff, but I needed something to have a richer view of a grade. And so it just started out as something. But then as I started to collect these, I started to notice a pattern. And the pattern was that I would get the same stories. It would be Facebook, Tesla, Airbnb, Uber, you know, it was the same stories again and again. And after reading the same story for the 50th time, I just started 
banning them. And then what I got were the really interesting ones. And they didn't tend to be disruptions. It was these wonderful stories of, you know, a better shovel that was invented by a garden tools company or a better baseball bat with a slightly different shaped handle that lets you control it better. There was by one of my executive MBAs who played professional baseball for a while. Just these wonderful stories of not disruptive innovations that had huge impacts on the fortunes of companies. And so I'm a disruption skeptic, not in the sense of you know, I would never tell one of your previous guests, I really enjoyed your interview with Michael Rayner. And I know Michael and count him as, you know, an acquaintance. And he's absolutely right. Disruption is real. And we have to watch out for it. And no amount of improvement of current products would have saved Kodak from the digital camera revolution. They got disrupted. And in exactly the ways he predicted with his colleague, Clayton Christensen, so I'm not a skeptic that disruption never happens, but too often we put so much time, effort, and expense. All the cool kids go work on the disruptive revolutionary projects, and we ignore those things that made us great. We forget to honor the things that the company did to make itself great, that our customers still depend on us for, and that really, in terms of what we know how to do and the people we've hired, that we're not just going to do yesterday and today, but we're going to continue to do tomorrow. So what I focus my innovation energies on is not just how to make those products better, but what else we can do to innovate to make our customers' lives easier around our products. What else can we do? to really help our customers get more value from the products that we make, from those products that helped our companies become great. Because that was the story from Lego, that Lego, they made a great brick, but once their patents expired in the 80s and everybody started making a brick that looked like Lego and snapped together with Lego, they thought they were going to become a commodity, if not bankrupt. And so they started hiring new people, investing in disruptive innovations, and encouraging their people to think outside the box. And thinking outside the box almost put them out of business. And it was only when they came back to the brick and honored that, that we are a construction company, you know, a construction play experience company, and that we need to think of ways to draw kids into that world. And so they started doing TV shows, comic books, and of course, more recently, feature-length movies. And that draws kids into the world of Lego and really motivates them and their parents to invest in those overpriced boxes of plastic pieces. That makes a lot of sense. New channels for people to discover your core. So you're innovating around the core. That makes a lot of sense. Now, in that book, you say that Steve Jobs, who many view as the exemplar of disruption, is not a disruptor. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, that was actually in my follow-on book. Oh, sure. Yes, yes. So after I wrote the Lego book, Brick by Brick, I was having a conversation with executives and they said, you know, Lego had the luxury of a crisis. They were almost bankrupt. And so they were able to change what they did and how they did it. We're not bankrupt. We're making good money, but we think that we need to do this. So how could we do what Lego did? And so that's what I challenged myself with for the follow-on, which is called The Power of Little Ideas. The second chapter of that was an argument that Steve Jobs was not a disruptor. I think it's a story that's often told completely inaccurately, that if you go back to what Steve Jobs was trying to do when he introduced the iPod and iTunes back in 2001, and you can look this up on YouTube and you can see it's actually a great example of what Lego did just two years later, that Lego's turnaround was modeled very much on Steve Jobs' turnaround of Apple. 
What he does in 2001 in the Macworld presentation is he shows a Mac and he has arrayed around it pictures of a VCR, of a Palm Pilot, of a CD player, of a digital camera. And he says, you know, your life is getting more digital and it's getting more and more difficult to manage all that. And nowhere is this more frustrating than music. And, you know, we want to help you manage your digital life. And one of the ways that we're going to start doing this is with your music. And then he unveils the iPod and iTunes. And so the reason I say it's not disruptive is because he was not trying to disrupt the music industry. He saw the iPod and iTunes as peripherals to the Mac that would draw people into the world of the Mac. People forget how close Apple was to bankruptcy back in 99, 2000, and around then when Steve Jobs was brought back into the company. And so what he was trying to do there was bring people back into this Mac system. And so if you're skeptical about that, and many people are, just go back and read Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, kind of the definitive biography of Steve Jobs, where he talks about how Steve Jobs fought like hell to prevent iTunes from going onto the IBM PC platform. He did not want it to go onto the IBM because he saw it as a way to get people onto the Mac platform. He was trying to sell more Macs, not trying to sell devices that would change the music industry. And so this may sound like an academic splitting hairs, but I really think it's important for innovators to understand that he was not looking at how can I find an industry that's ripe for disruption and come up with a device in that industry that will really change the fortunes of my company. He was absolutely not doing that. What he was doing instead was saying, hey, we make Macs. We made Macs yesterday. We're going to make them today and we're going to make them tomorrow. What are people trying to do with our product and how can we help them? get more value from that. Well, let's reconceive the Mac as something that does spreadsheets and word processing to being the hub of a person's digital life, their pictures, their calendar, their contacts, their music. And so how can we help them get more value from that Mac? Well, let's start with music and then maybe we'll move to storing your photos there. Then maybe we'll move to storing your videos there. Then maybe we'll put movies, you know, and we all know what happened then. And then finally, in 2007, he comes out with the iPhone. And I think that was genuinely disruptive. There he was saying this whole experience of smartphones is really just not good. And so we are going to change it. That was deliberately disruptive. That was 10 years after he came back to Apple. Got it. So any disruption that happened around the Mac may have happened or the music industry, if that was disruptive, it was a byproduct of his core business, which was the Mac. And I think you see this often that the innovator says, we're not in the music business, we're in the computer business, and we happen to be doing music. Like that shift in defining what business you're in has you behave differently. And, you know, customers dragged him there. The reason that they ended up going onto the IBM platform is because the market pressure was so great. And there's similar stories like he did not want to open up the App Store, which, of course, was a huge benefit for Apple. And he was completely wrong. But Steve Jobs was smart enough. Well, actually, he was sick enough that his influence had waned, unfortunately, back in 2008. But he was smart enough earlier on to realize that you do what your customers really want you to do. And there's another lesson there, by the way, which is that sometimes what seems like a complementary innovation and starts out that way turns into a real core. So Apple, as everybody knows, makes a lot more from the small screen than the big screen. 
Lego, they started out telling stories to bring kids into the world of Lego. So it started with Bionicle in 2001. Then there's lots of other themes where the stories drove the creative construction play. But now I would say Lego recently bought the company that ran the Legolands. They're the second largest operator of theme parks in the world. They're moving to compete against Disney. Whereas before, when they were practicing disruption, they were trying to create video games and other digital experiences, which nobody really wanted except the strategy people. And so that strategy of doing something digital and disruptive, again, almost failed because it moved them away from what their customers wanted from them. Yeah, I think that, as I said in the introduction, The Power of Little Ideas is one of my all-time favorite business books, not just of innovation. After someone reads it, what would be the one key lesson that you'd like them to walk away with, or what would you want them to do differently? I think the first lesson is that the secret to great innovation sometimes is to figure out where you're not going to innovate. To start off by asking the question, what did we do yesterday? What are we going to do today? What are we going to do tomorrow? What are those things that made our company great? And let's honor that. Let's accept that. And then let's start to think about how could we innovate around that? How could we help our customers get more value from the products that are the core of who we are? And that's not the only type of innovation, right? We should always be working to make those products better. We should always be looking at new disruptive technologies. Yes, absolutely. But the lesson from that book is there's this other type of innovation, which is let's take the core products as given and then let's figure out how to help our customers get more value from them by innovating around those products. Love it. I love it. So of all the strategic advice you've gotten, what has been the most impactful for you? You know, I dismissed it when I first heard the advice because it was just so obvious. It seemed like one of those things that people say, but somebody said, it's all about the people. And that wasn't a kind of a startup or a big company. It was just a general thing. And I thought, well, of course it's about the people, but you know, what does that mean? But as I've studied this approach to innovation and as I've thought about it, you know, how do you innovate in many different ways to help the customer get a lot of value from your products or services? Realize that pulling together a team that can do, say, the digital, you know, the smartphone app development next to somebody that can do the product development, next to somebody that can do the business model development, next to somebody that can decide how to invest in all this, next to somebody else. Having people that can really work to understand each other and work across different functional areas, corporate boundaries, et cetera, to really pull together and really focus on what the customer cares about is really hard. And so doing real innovation, especially a richer, multivariate type of innovation like I'm talking about, it really is all about the people. Yeah, I love that because it's a people-to-people co-creation or interaction, not just the customer, but the people that are designing the innovations for the customer. That makes a lot of sense, beautifully put. I have got a bunch of other questions that are coming to mind that I'd love to dig in with you. However, we are at the top of our time with you. Just like to know, what are you working on now and where can people connect with you and learn from you? When COVID hit, I became a coronapreneur. <laughs> I was making most of my income from speeches at big corporate events or company training programs. I'm on the faculty at the executive education group at MIT Sloan, a wonderful group. So all that evaporated. And I thought, well, why not practice what I preach? And so I got involved in all things in a hair care startup. I think people probably can't see me, but I'm follically impaired. I don't have a lot of hair. But this disruption, 
disruption is happening in the hair care business. What's happened is that Amazon and other places like Ulta and so forth have really disrupted the professional salons. They used to make most of their profit, not most of their revenue, but most of their profit from selling expensive shampoos. When a suburban woman of a certain age would go in to get her hair, maybe get it dyed and get it cut and styled and blown out and so forth. That's a very labor-intensive process. And the salons will, on the way out, say, hey, you should buy this shampoo. And they show you a very expensive bottle of shampoo. Well, all those sales of those products have moved online. And so all those profits have moved out of the salon. And Amazon is doing this new venture, which just came out last month, where they're opening up a big retail store with a chair in the corner where they have one or two stylists doing one or two customers. But then the rest of it is all retail so that they can sell those professional products at Amazon rates and deliver them to your house and get the subscription and get all the profits and so forth. And so that disruption is going to accelerate. I've been working with a startup called Alon Unlimited that is really working to reverse that by doing a customized professional hair care brand. And so what we're doing is we're saying basically everybody's hair is the same, but everybody's hair is unique. The fundamental chemistry of hair and follicles and scalp and so forth, everybody's the same, no matter what ethnic background or history or age you are. But everybody's hair needs are unique. And so why not create a brand that allows the professional stylist to prescribe it for the customer? And then the stylist name and the customer's name is on every bottle and it's sold only through that stylist. And so you know, they put in the work, they design something that really works better for the customer. They sell it to the customer. They get a commission on it rather than some big company and everybody wins. It is, we think, a genuinely better product, but what really is changing is everything around the product. It's a different business model. It's a different way of interacting with the stylist and the customer. We're innovating around the shampoo. I love it. And applying what you preach and disrupting without disrupting. This is beautiful. Thank you so much, Dave, for being here with us. It was really great talking to you. I'm honored to be a part of your podcast in such wonderful company. I, I'm kind of like, wait a sec, what am I doing with this group of people? <laughs> but, so uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.